section thirty seven of a history of our own times volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter sixteen mr disraeli part two from that hour mr disraeli was the real leader of the tory squires from that moment his voice gave the word of command to the tory party there was a peculiar courage too in the part he took he must have known that he was open to one retort from peel that might have crushed a less confident man it was well known that when peel was coming into power disraeli expected to be offered a place of some kind in the ministry and would have accepted it mr disraeli afterwards explained when peel made allusion to the fact that he never had put himself directly forward as a candidate for office but there had undoubtedly been some negotiation going forward which was conducted on mr disraeli's side by some one who supposed he was doing what disraeli would like to have done and peel had not taken any hint and would not in any way avail himself of disraeli's services disraeli must have known that when he attacked peel the latter would hardly fail to make use of this obvious retort but he felt little daunted on that score he could have made a fair enough defence of his consistency in any case but he knew very well that what the indignant tories wanted just then was not a man who had been uniformly consistent but one who could attack sir robert peel without scruple and with effect disraeli made his own career by the course he took on that memorable night and he also made a new career for the tory party now that he had proved himself so brilliant a spadassin in this debate men began to remember that he had dealt trenchant blows before many of his sentences attacking peel which have passed into familiar quotation almost like proverbs were spoken in eighteen forty five he had accused the great minister of having borrowed his tactics from the whigs the right honourable gentleman caught the whigs bathing and he walked away with their clothes he has left them in the full enjoyment of their liberal position and he is himself a strict conservative of their garments i look on the right honourable gentleman as a man who has tamed the shrew of liberalism by her own tactics he is the political petruchio who has outbid you all if the right honourable gentleman would only stick to quotation instead of having recourse to obloquy he may rely upon it he would find it a safer weapon it is one he always wields with the hand of a master and when he does appeal to any authority in prose or verse he is sure to be successful partly because he seldom quotes a passage that has not already received the meed of parliamentary approbation we can all readily understand how such a hit as the last would tell in the case of an orator like peel who had the old-fashioned way of introducing long quotations from approved classic authors into his speeches and who not unfrequently introduced citations which were received with all the better welcome by the house because of the familiarity of their language more fierce and cutting was the reference to canning with whom peel had quarrelled and the implied contrast of canning with peel sir robert had cited against disraeli canning's famous lines praying to be saved from a candid friend 
Disraeli seized the opportunity thus given. The name of Canning is one, he said, never to be mentioned, I am sure, in this house without emotion. We all admire his genius. We all, or at least most of us, deplore his untimely end, and we all sympathize with him in his severe struggle with supreme prejudice and sublime mediocrity, with inveterate foes and with candid friends. The phrase sublime mediocrity had a marvelous effect. As a hostile description of Peel's character, it had enough of seeming truth about it to tell most effectively alike on friends and enemies of the great leader. A friend, or even an impartial enemy, would not indeed admit that it accurately described Peel's intellect and position, but as a stroke of personal satire, it touched nearly enough the characteristics of its object to impress itself at once as a master hit on the minds of all who caught its instant purpose. The words remained in use long after the controversy and its occasion had passed away, and it was allowed that an unfriendly and bitter critic could hardly have found a phrase more suited to its ungenial purpose or more likely to connect itself at once in the public mind with the name of him who was its object. Mr. Disraeli did not, in fact, greatly admire Canning. He has left a very disparaging criticism of Canning as an orator in one of his novels. On the other hand, he has shown in his life of Lord George Bentinck that he could do full justice to some of the greatest qualities of Sir Robert Peel. But at the moment of his attacking Peel and crying up Canning, he was only concerned to disparage the one, and it was on this account that he eulogized the other. The famous sentence, too, in which he declared that a conservative government was an organized hypocrisy was spoken during the debates of the session of 1845 before the explanation of the minister on the subject of free trade. All these brilliant things men now began to recall. Looking back from this distance of time, we can see well enough that Mr. Disraeli had displayed his peculiar genius long before the House of Commons took the pains to recognize it. From the night of the opening of the session of 1846, it was never questioned. Thenceforward, he was really the mouthpiece and the sense-carrier of his party. For some time to come, indeed, his nominal post might have seemed to be only that of its bravo. The country gentlemen who cheered to the echo his fierce attacks on Peel during the debates of the session of 1846 had probably not the slightest suspicion that the daring rhetorician who was so savagely revenging them on their now-hated leader was a man of as cool a judgment, as long a head, and as complete a capacity for the control of a party as any politician who for generations had appeared in the House of Commons. One immediate effect of the turn thus given by Disraeli's timely intervention in the debate was the formation of a protection party in the House of Commons. The leadership of this perilous adventure was entrusted to Lord George Bentinck, a sporting nobleman of energetic character, great tenacity of purpose and conviction, and a not inconsiderable aptitude for politics, which had hitherto had no opportunity for either exercising or displaying itself. Lord George Bentinck had sat in eight parliaments without taking part in any great debate. When he was suddenly drawn into the leadership of the Protection Party in the House of Commons, he gave himself up to it entirely. 
he had at first only joined the party as one of its organizers but he showed himself in many respects well suited for the leadership and the choice of leaders was in any case very limited when once he had accepted the position he was unwearying in his attention to its duties and indeed up to the moment of his sudden and premature death he never allowed himself any relaxation from the cares it imposed on him mr disraeli in his life of lord george bentinck has indeed overrated with the pardonable extravagance of friendship the intellectual gifts of his leader bentinck's abilities were hardly even of the second class and the amount of knowledge which he brought to bear on the questions he discussed with so much earnestness and energy was often and of necessity little better than mere cram but in parliament the essential qualities of a leader are not great powers of intellect a man of cool head good temper firm will and capacity for appreciating the serviceable qualities of other men may always provided that he has high birth and great social influence make a very successful leader even though he be wanting altogether in the higher attributes of eloquence and statesmanship it may be doubted whether on the whole great eloquence and genius are necessary at all to the leader of a party in parliament in times not specially troublous bentinck had patience energy good humour and considerable appreciation of the characters of men if he had a bad voice was a poor speaker talked absolute nonsense about protective duties and sugar and guano and made up absurd calculations to prove impossibilities and paradoxes he at least always spoke in full faith and was only the more necessary to his party because he could honestly continue to believe in the old doctrines no matter what political economy and hard facts might say to the contrary the secession was therefore in full course of organization on january twenty seventh sir robert peel came forward to explain his financial policy it is almost superfluous to say that the most intense anxiety prevailed all over the country and that the house was crowded an incident of the night which then created a profound sensation would not be worth noticing now but for the evidence it gives of the bitterness with which the protection party were filled and of the curiously bad taste of which gentlemen of position and education can be guilty under the inspiration of a blind fanaticism there is something ludicrous in the pompous tone as of righteous indignation deliberately repressed with which mr disraeli in his life of bentinck announces the event the proceedings in the house of commons he says were ushered in by a startling occurrence what was this portentous preliminary his royal highness the prince consort attended by the master of the horse appeared and took his seat in the body of the house to listen to the statement of the first minister in other words there was to be a statement of great importance and a debate of profound interest and the husband of the queen was anxious to be a listener the prince consort did not understand that because he had married the queen he was therefore to be precluded from hearing a discussion in the house of commons the poorest man and the greatest man in the land were alike free to occupy a seat in one of the galleries of the house and it is not to be wondered at if the prince consort fancied that he too might listen to a debate without unhinging the british constitution lord george bentinck and the protectionists were aflame with indignation they saw in the quiet presence of the intelligent gentleman who came to listen to the discussion an attempt 
to overawe the commons and compel them to bend to the will of the crown it is not easy to read without a feeling of shame the absurd and unseemly comments which were made upon this harmless incident the queen herself has given an explanation of the prince's visit which is straightforward and dignified the prince merely went as the prince of wales and the queen's other sons do for once to hear a fine debate which is so useful to all princes but this the queen adds he naturally felt unable to do again the prime minister announced his policy his object was to abandon the sliding scale altogether but for the present he intended to impose a duty of ten shillings a quarter on corn when the price of it was under forty-eight shillings a quarter to reduce that duty by one shilling for every shilling of rise in price until it reached fifty-three shillings a quarter when the duty should fall to four shillings this arrangement was however only to hold good for three years at the end of which time protective duties on grain were to be wholly abandoned peel explained that he intended gradually to apply the principle of free trade to manufactures and every description of produce bearing in mind the necessity of providing for the expenditure of the country and of smoothing away some of the difficulties which a sudden withdrawal of protection might cause the differential duties on sugar which were professedly intended to protect the growers of free sugars against the competition of those who cultivated sugar by the use of slave labour were to be diminished but not abolished the duties on the importation of foreign cattle were to be at once removed in order to compensate the agricultural interests for the gradual withdrawal of protective duties there were to be some readjustments of local burdens we need not dwell much on this part of the explanation we are familiar in late years with the ingenious manner in which the principle of the readjustment of local burdens is worked in the hope of conciliating the agricultural interests these readjustments are not usually received with any great gratitude or attended by any particular success in this instance sir robert peel could hardly have laid much serious stress on them if the landowners and farmers had really any just ground of complaint in the abolition of protection the salve which was applied to their wound would scarcely have caused them to forget its pains the important part of the explanation so far as history is concerned consisted in the fact that peel proclaimed himself an absolute convert to the free trade principle and that the introduction of the principle into all departments of our commercial legislation was according to his intention to be a mere question of time and convenience the struggle was to be between protection and free trade not that the proposals of the ministry wholly satisfied the professed free traders these latter would have enforced if they could an immediate application of the principle without the interval of three years and the devices and shifts which were to be put in operation during that middle time but of course although they pressed their protest in the form of an amendment they had no idea of not taking what they could get when the amendment failed to secure the approval of the majority the protectionist amendment amounted to a distinct proposal that the policy of the government be absolutely rejected by the house the debate lasted for twelve nights and at the end the protectionists had two hundred and forty votes against three hundred and thirty-seven given on behalf of the policy of the government 
the majority of ninety seven was not quite so large as the government had anticipated and the result was to encourage the protectionists in their plans of opposition the opportunities of obstruction were many the majority just mentioned were merely in favour of going into committee of the whole house to consider the existing customs and corn acts but every single financial scheme which the minister had to propose must be introduced debated and carried if it was to be carried as a separate bill we shall not ask our readers to follow us into the details of these long discussions they were not important they were often not dignified they more frequently concerned themselves about the conduct and personal consistency of the minister than about the merits of his policy the arguments in favour of protection which doubtless seemed effective to the country gentlemen then seem like the prattle of children now there were indeed some exciting passages in the debates for these the house was mainly indebted to the rhetoric of mr disraeli that indefatigable and somewhat reckless champion occupied himself with incessant attacks on the prime minister he described peel as a trader on other people's intelligence a political burglar of other men's ideas the occupants of the treasury bench he said were political peddlers who had bought their party in the cheapest market and sold it in the dearest this was strong language but it was after all more justifiable than the attempt mr disraeli made to revive an old and bitter controversy about sir robert peel and mr cobden which for the sake of the former had better have been forgotten three years before mr edward drummond private secretary of sir robert peel was shot by an assassin there could be no doubt that the victim had been mistaken for the prime minister himself the assassin turned out to be a lunatic and as such was found not guilty of the murder and was consigned to a lunatic asylum the event naturally had a profound effect on sir robert peel and during one of the debates on free trade mr cobden happened to say that he would hold the prime minister responsible for the condition of the country peel in an extraordinary burst of excitement interpreted the words as a threat to expose him to the attack of an assassin nothing could be more painfully absurd and nothing could better show the unreasoning and discreditable hatred of the tories at that time for any one who opposed the policy of peel than the fact that they actually cheered their leader again and again when he made his passionate and half-frenzied charge on one of the purest and noblest men who ever sat in the english parliament peel soon recovered his senses he saw the error of which he had been guilty and regretted it and it ought to have been consigned to forgetfulness but mr disraeli in repelling a charge made against him of indulging in unjustifiable personalities revived the whole story and reminded the house of commons that the prime minister had charged the leader of the free trade league with inciting assassins to murder him this unjustifiable attempt to rekindle an old quarrel had however no other effect than to draw from sir robert peel a renewed expression of apology for the charge he had made against mr cobden in the course of a heated debate when i put an erroneous construction on some expressions used by the honourable member for stockport mr cobden declared that the explanation made by peel was entirely satisfactory and expressed his hope that no one on either side of the house would attempt to revive the subject or make further allusion to it the government prevailed it would be superfluous to go into any details as to the progress of the corn bill 
enough to say that the third reading of the bill passed the house of commons on may fifteenth by a majority of ninety-eight votes the bill was at once sent up to the house of lords and by means chiefly of the earnest advice of the duke of wellington was carried through that house without much serious opposition but june twenty fifth the day when the bill was read for a third time in the house of lords was a memorable day in the parliamentary annals of england it saw the fall of the ministry who had carried to success the greatest piece of legislation that had been introduced since lord grey's reform bill a coercion bill for ireland was the measure which brought this catastrophe on the government of sir robert peel while the corn bill was yet passing through the house of commons the government felt called upon in consequence of the condition of crime and outrage in ireland to introduce a coercion bill lord george bentinck at first gave the measure his support but during the whitsuntide recess he changed his views he now declared that he had only supported the bill on the assurance of the government that it was absolutely necessary for the safety of life in ireland and that as the government had not pressed it on in advance of every other measure especially no doubt of the corn bill he could not believe that it was really a matter of imminent necessity and that furthermore he had no longer any confidence in the government and could not trust them with extraordinary powers in truth the bill was placing the government in a serious difficulty all the irish followers of o'connell would of course oppose the coercion measure the whigs when out of office have usually made it a rule to oppose coercion bills if they do not come accompanied with some promises of legislative reform and concession the english radical members mr cobden and his followers were almost sure to oppose it under these circumstances it seemed probable enough that if the protectionists joined with the other opponents of the coercion bill the government must be defeated the temptation was too great as mr disraeli himself candidly says of his party vengeance had succeeded in most breasts to the more sanguine sentiment the field was lost but at any rate there should be retribution for those who had betrayed it the question with many of the indignant protectionists was as mr disraeli himself puts it how was sir robert peel to be turned out it soon became evident that he could be turned out by those who detested him and longed for vengeance voting against him on the coercion bill this was done the fiercer protectionists voted with the free traders the whigs and the irish catholic and liberal members and after a debate of much bitterness and passion the division on the second reading of the coercion bill took place on thursday june twenty fifth and the ministry was left in a minority of seventy three two hundred and nineteen votes only were given for the second reading of the bill and two hundred and ninety two against it some eighty of the protectionists followed lord george bentinck into the lobby to vote against the bill and their votes settled the question mr disraeli has given a somewhat pompous description of the scene as the protectionists passed in defile before the minister to the hostile lobby palis te hoc vulnere palis imolat cries the hero of the aeneid as he plunges his sword into the heart of his rival protection kills you not your coercion bill the irreconcilable protectionists might have said as they trooped past the minister chance had put within their grasp the means of vengeance and they had seized it and made successful use of it 
the peel ministry had fallen in its very hour of triumph three days after sir robert peel announced his resignation of office his speech was considered one of glorification and pique says mr disraeli it does not so impress most readers it appears to have been full of dignity and of emotion not usual for peel but not surely under the circumstances incompatible with dignity it contained that oft-quoted tribute to the services of a former opponent in which peel declared that the name which ought to be and which will be associated with the success of these measures is the name of the man who acting i believe from pure and disinterested motives has advocated their cause with untiring energy and with appeals to reason enforced by an eloquence the more to be admired because it is unaffected and unadorned the name of richard cobden an added effect was given to this well-deserved panegyric by the little irregularity which the prime minister committed when he mentioned in debate a member by name the closing sentence of the speech was eloquent and touching many would censure him peel said his name would perhaps be execrated by the monopolist who would maintain protection for his own individual benefit but it may be that i shall leave a name sometimes remembered with expressions of goodwill in those places which are the abode of men whose lot it is to labour and to earn their daily bread by the sweat of their brow a name remembered with expressions of goodwill when they shall recreate their exhausted strength with abundant and untaxed food the sweeter because it is no longer leavened with a sense of injustice the great minister fell so great a success followed by so sudden and complete a fall is hardly recorded in the parliamentary history of our modern times peel had crushed o'connell and carried free trade and o'connell and the protectionists had life enough yet to pull him down he is as a conqueror who having won the great victory of his life is struck by a hostile hand in some byway as he passes home to enjoy his triumph End of section 37